0: The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: i your Bibles to Mark 13. You just heard the um, verses read, 24 through 27. We consider... Uh, the second coming of Christ. And as I do this morning, my mind goes back uh, 29 years. My wife and I were missionaries in Japan, and I went regularly on Saturdays to a different city. I took a train from Tokushima to Takamatsu. And uh, in that city, I would teach uh, English and the Bible. And uh, one particular um, day on, on Saturday, I was walking through the streets of Takamatsu and praying about, about the uh, ministry I was about to have, and I looked overhead, and there was a spectacular cloud formation. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, one of those, those clouds that just heap up like a pile, like a mountain up to the sky, very, very dramatic, and it was especially dramatic in that there was a small peephole of sunlight coming through, and there were rays that were streaming down, and I was just overwhelmed, and so I began singing the hymn we're going to close with today, It Is Well With My Soul, because I really felt that it was well with my soul. But I was especially thinking about the fourth uh, stanza, which says, And Lord, haste the day when our faith will be sight. The clouds be rolled back like a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. And so think about that when we sing uh, at the end. But I was thinking about that myself and how dramatic and how awesome that day is going to be. As I was contemplating this sermon, I was thinking about that day, the day that is yet to come, and our understanding of all that will happen on that day. I would say easily the most dramatic moment in the history of sin-cursed humanity. I can't actually imagine a more spectacular and dramatic day than that. And we are going to understand it and effectively see it today by faith. My prayer has been that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, that you would be able to see the invisible, the future, and that seeing the the glories of the greatness and the majesty and the power and the terror, indeed the terror of that day, in which everything on earth will come to an end. To see it by faith and understand it by faith, that's my desire. And how different is the circumstance of Jesus' second coming from that of his first coming? Think of the Christmas hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. We know that an army of angels came and appeared, but just to a very small number of shepherds on the hills outside Bethlehem. No one else got to see that. It was just a pregnant couple, uh, a pregnant woman, uh, no room in the inn, and then Jesus born in the natural way. Very quiet. But the second coming of Christ will not be so. And we need to understand it. We need to understand it biblically. We need to understand the reasons for it. Uh, This morning, as I was thinking about that, just the reasons for the second coming, I listed out a series of them. Why is Christ coming back to earth? First and foremost, for the glory of God, for the open, clear, plain, visible display of the greatness and majesty of Almighty God. Secondly, to be praised and marveled at by the saints, stimulating us in worship such as we have never experienced before. And that even for all eternity. Third, to rescue his persecuted people from imminent danger, deadly danger. Fourthly, to bring about justice for them as they are crying out for justice day and night, to bring about justice and indeed vindication for his people. Fifth, to punish evildoers, idolaters, blasphemers, and wicked people who have not fled to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Six, to end the reign, the open reign of Satan and Antichrist, and that final government which we have described recently. The seventh, to establish the kingdom of God in righteousness and purity, in answer to the prayers that have been prayed in every generation May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To usher in the new heaven and the new earth, a perfect world free from all death, mourning, crying, and pain. To be with his people forever, and to end the reign of sin and death for all eternity. These are the reasons and many others. And so it's beneficial for us today to walk through this biblically, to understand it, to understand what Mark reveals about it. And I begin with the absolute certainty of the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ is taught many, many times throughout the Scriptures. This is one of the central articles of the Christian faith, uh, that Jesus Christ will return visibly and powerfully to end this era of human history and bring in a world of eternal life and radiant glory. We believe this as Christians. Now, Paul speaks of the purpose of Jesus' first coming like this. In Galatians 1, 3 and 4, the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. To rescue us from this present evil age. Well, what is this present evil age? And what world of eternal blessedness did Christ come to usher in? Well, no text captures it better than Revelation twenty-one four. There it says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So, This present evil age in Galatians 1 and the old order of things that is passing away are the same. They're just different ways of talking about the same thing. The present evil age is characterized by sin, the reign of sin, sin reigning in death and mourning and crying in pain. That's this present evil age. Jesus has come to rescue us from that. The new heavens and the new earth that Jesus will bring in at his second coming will be forever free from those enemies, forever free from sin and Satan and death, mourning, crying, and pain. Therefore, the second coming of Christ is a central aspect of the Christian hope. We are looking forward to it. We are longing for it. We're yearning for it to come. We're seeking to speed its coming by service to God and by the proclamation of the gospel. Second coming is therefore taught in many places in Scripture. First... Historically, by a man named Enoch, seventh from Adam. We learn this in the book of Jude. Enoch, seventh from Adam. That's a long, 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 long time ago. Said these words. Prophesied about these men, wicked men. Behold, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones. Angels to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts they have done in the ungodly way, and of all the harsh words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch said that. How in the world did Enoch know about, about the Lord coming with thousands of angels the same way we do? The Lord revealed it to him prophetically. But it started with Enoch. Then many other places, but I zero in in my mind to Daniel chapter 7, the vision that Daniel the prophet had at night, a night vision. And the centerpiece of it was a vision of the Son of Man, Daniel seven thirteen and 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed." So it's taught there in Daniel 7. It's taught in Matthew 24 and 25, and here also in Mark 13, and we'll walk through it carefully today. But there are many other passages in the second coming. Jesus, for example, in John 14, spoke to his apostles the night before he was crucified. He said in John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, listen now, I will come back and take you to be with me so you also may be where I am. It's a clear prediction of the second coming of Christ. And then that very night after Jesus was arrested and then early the next morning when he was on trial, he quoted it and quoted Daniel 7. And I'm not going to read it now because I'll read it later in the sermon. But he referred to the second coming at that point. It got him killed. It got him condemned by the Jewish authorities. Then after his death on the cross, and after his physical resurrection from the dead, and after he had spent 40 days instructing his disciples and giving many convincing proofs that he was alive, after all of that training was over, he gave them this final word, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. Acts 1, 9 through 11, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Clear prediction of the second coming of Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote of it often. He spoke of the parousia, the coming of Christ, He spoke of it many times, most dramatically in 1 Thessalonians 4. It says in verses 16 through 18, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's the rapture. Caught up, mid-air, mid-heaven, to meet the Lord as he descends from heaven to earth. To meet the Lord in the air. And so, we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I hope you're encouraged with these words. This is the future. This is what Paul taught in First Thessalonians 4. And then, in 2 Thessalonians 2, he said... Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the parousia, and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. You didn't miss it. That ship has not sailed, etc. But he talked about the parousia, the coming of the Lord. The apostle Peter talked about it in 2 Peter 3. And verse three and four. First of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming? he promised. What coming? That's the second coming of Christ. Well, where is it? We don't see it. Where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Peter goes on to talk about how the generation of Noah before the flood were saying the same thing. Jesus made that same connection. You're saying, there's no flood. We don't see any flood until that flood came. And then later in 2 Peter 3 and verse 10, he said, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And also the second coming of Christ is taught many times in the book of Revelation, such as Revelation 1.7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. We'll return to that passage a number of times. And then, of course, in Revelation 19, it openly depicts and describes the second coming of Christ with the angels, the, an angelic army, and Jesus coming with a sword coming, coming out of his mouth which, which he, with which he will slay the wicked. And then in the final chapter, Revelation 22, verse 7, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. And again, Revelation 22, 12, and 13. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We believe in linear history. We believe in an unfolding history. We don't believe in reincarnation and cyclical history that goes around. No, no, we believe in a beginning, a middle, and an end. We believe in an Alpha and Omega, and Jesus is that letter and that letter and every letter in between. We believe in a purpose to history, and we believe it's going to end. This phase, this present evil age will end with the second coming of Christ. And then again, Revelation 22, 20, the second to last verse of the Bible He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. That's three times in Revelation 22, he says, I'm coming soon. Then John replies, amen, come Lord Jesus. Well, it seems then that looking forward to the second coming, yearning for the second coming, crying out for it as John does is essential to our healthy lives in this present evil age. Okay, so this is a major theme taught many times in the Bible. What aspects does Jesus give here, here? In Mark 13. That's our purpose now. As we look through Mark 13, 24 through 27, it begins with the heavenly bodies darkened, shaken, and removed. Look at verse 24 and 25. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. So the context here, as we remember, is in those days following that distress. So we're right in the middle now of Mark 13. We've been walking through this. The last sermon was entitled, as you remember, Run for Your Lives. Run for your lives. Look at verses 14 through 19. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it would be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress, unequal from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. So the abomination of desolation, as we walk through that, to devote a whole sermon to that, the abomination of desolation is the defiling of a sacred space by a blasphemous Gentile power. Concerning the destruction of the temple, Jesus talked about the Gentile armies surrounding the city, ready to destroy it. But the abomination of desolation per se is the Antichrist finally uh, setting himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And Jesus clearly warned his church that would be living in that geographical region, both at the, you know, the destruction of the temple in 8070, but then as it foretold, the final events. When you see that, when you see these things spoken of by the prophet Daniel... Run for your lives. Get away as fast as you can. This is what the Bible calls the great tribulation. The book of Revelation gives many more details about what, what life on earth will be like at that time and how terrifying and terrible it will be. Seven seals broken, seven trumpets sounded, seven bulls poured out. Those seven seven sevens give heaven's response to the wickedness and sinfulness of man on earth and they will ravage, ravage the surface of the earth. Ecological disasters such as has never been seen before. A clear link between human sin and the ecology. As we saw from the beginning, when Adam sinned and the earth was cursed and it produced only thorns and thistles for him. We learn in Romans chapter 8 that the whole world has been cursed with the bondage of decay. There's a link between human sin and the ecology. But the ecological disasters described specifically in Revelation 8, had never, have never been seen before. A burning up of green grass, a burning up of, of a third of the trees on earth, a, a turning of a third of the ocean waters to blood, a killing of a third of the living creatures in the sea. Now, what effect would that have on, on human commerce and, and life itself? And then, even worse, a third of the drinking waters fouled, made undrinkable. Now, what effect will that have on... National boundaries when some parts of the world have drinking water and other parts don't, and you can't live longer than a certain number of days without water. A a terrifying, terrible rending of the planet because of the judgments of God. It's not an accident, but it's something God is pouring out. The unleashing of, of plagues on mankind, resulting in painful sores and an agony so great that the people, the inhabitants of the earth, will long for death, but they will not find it. An unleashing of demonic powers... Billowing up from the the deepest resources of the pit and coming to bring agonies and torments on people, Revelation 9. It's a terrifying time. Then the coming of the beasts from the sea, the Antichrist, the one world government, the one world religion, all of those things that culminate in the abomination of desolation. Those are terrible days. Again, 19 and 20, Mark 13, 19 and 20. Those will be days of distress, unequal from the beginning when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. Think about that. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. So immediately after the distress of those days, the second coming happens. Second coming happens. And it's described here as the shaking and rending and destruction of the cosmos. Look up, up into the night sky. Look up into the sky and see the lights that God put there. Verse 24 and 25, in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. So that the, the heavens will be rent, similar to Isaiah's, prayer concerning the wickedness of man. You said in Isaiah 64, 1 and 2, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you, as when fire sets twigs ablaze and causes water to boil. Come down and make your name known to your enemies. Cause the nations to quake before you. Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. It's interesting, this idea of rending the heavens. It creates a, a sense of like a membrane or a barrier between us and the heavenly realms. And a rending is a tear and a rip, and out of it, Isaiah wants God Almighty to come and bring judgment. What's interesting is that this is the language used at Jesus' baptism. When Jesus was baptized, the heavens were torn, but out came a dove, a symbol of peace, a symbol of reconciliation with God. That's the first coming. Peace on earth, good will to man. That's what the first rending happened. The second will not be so. It'll be more like Isaiah 64. The wrath of God coming out of that rending of the heavens. And the heavenly bodies will be shaken and removed. So now I need to bring up the Polish astronomer Copernicus. Some of you, I'm sure, are thinking about Copernicus, right? No, you're not, but I am anyway. Until Copernicus, most people on earth thought that the stars, the sun, the moon revolved around the earth. The earth was the center of everything. And they moved in spheres, like concentric spheres. Earth is center, and they moved across. So the, the sun would make its circuit across the sky in this sort of pattern. But along came Copernicus, and he wasn't the only one, but he led the way to teach us that actually the earth revolves around the sun physically. That is true physically. However, the Bible does give an earthbound purpose to the heavenly bodies. The reason they exist is found on planet earth. We get that from Genesis chapter 1. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light to the earth, and it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the sky, the sun, uh, the day, sorry, the greater light to govern the day, that's the sun, and the lesser light to govern the night, that's the moon. He also made the stars. One of the great understatements in the entire Bible. Oh, by the way, he also made the stars. But God made them all. And God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light to the earth. So that's twice we have an earthbound statement for the sun, the moon, and the stars. So let them, let the earth physically revolve around the sun, that's fine. But when events come to their conclusion on the surface of the earth, the sun, the moon, and the stars will end their career. So there's an earthbound purpose to these, to give light to the earth and to mark time, seasons and days and years. This proves also to me there are no other planet Earths out there having an unfolding redemptive history, and Jesus does that saving thing that he did here in planet after planet after planet like some traveling road show. That is false. It is not true. When events come to an end here, the stars will fall from the sky. Literally, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. Either the sun's light will be blocked or reduced or cease to give it altogether because the sun will no longer exist. The sun and the moon, we are told, will not be needed in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, will not be needed because the glory of God will illuminate that new universe and that new Jerusalem. doesn't mean they don't exist. just says they won't be needed. So maybe they won't exist at all. sixth seal of Revelation speaks of the same thing, Revelation 6, uh, 12 through 14. I watched as you opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Isaiah 64, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down and make the mountains shake before you like boiling water. The fourth trumpet in Revelation correlates. Revelation eight twelve. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, also a third of the night. Isaiah had also predicted this, Isaiah 34, 4. All the stars of the heavens will be dissolved and the sky rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves from a vine, like shriveled figs from a fig tree. So we have this image again and again and again. Now I'm aware that in the book of Isaiah... Uh, it's sometimes linked to cataclysmic events that happen on Earth, such as the end of an empire, like Babylonian Empire, when it doesn't literally happen that the stars fall from the sky, but it's like the events will be so big, it'll be like that. I understand that language. But since the language is used again and again and again and again, that may be just a poetical connection to what actually will physically happen at the end of the world. Now, you wonder, how could God do this? It's because God is sovereign over every created thing in the universe. And Isaiah 40, verse 26 says, Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry hosts one by one and calls them each by name because of his great power and his mighty understanding, not one of them is missing. They continue to exist, according to Isaiah 40:26, because God wills that they continue to exist. God sustains the stars. The new heaven, new earth will have a new cosmos as well. Next, Jesus comes with the clouds. Look at verse 26. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with power and great glory. Now, this was predicted by Daniel and then cited by Jesus at his trials. The very thing that, Jesus, that Daniel saw in the Son of Man vision that I already read for you. Daniel 7, 12, and 13. He saw the Son of Man coming into the presence of Almighty God on the clouds and receiving from him power and great glory. And the angels and then all peoples on earth worshiping him and serving him. That's the Son of Man vision. Jesus cited that on trial for his life before the Jewish authorities. I mean, think of the boldness of Jesus. He knew they wouldn't be able to accept it, but he still proclaimed it, referred to it. So Mark 14, 62 to 64. They asked him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said, I am, period. That's a claim to deity, I am. And then he quotes or alludes to Daniel 7. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now that's a clear prediction to his enemies. You will see this. You're going to see this, whether you believe in me or not. will not take faith to see this. You will see it. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. So Jesus predicting his own second coming is what officially got him killed. Quoting Daniel 7. Now the clouds, Jesus coming with the clouds, I believe are both physical, like I saw in Takamatsu that day, but they're also symbolic. Clouds are referred to again and again in connection with the great power of God, clouds are awesome and dramatic. I think all of us who have flown have been above the clouds and then seen a carpet of clouds dramatically. And you can see, like especially at sunset, they're all glowing and all these. They're very dramatic things. Clouds literally hid Jesus when he ascended from the Earth, and so it's reasonable for them to be a feature on his return. But the clouds also symbolize. The wrath of God, again and again, the wrath of God. Like at Mount Sinai, Moses said to the Jews, in retrospect, looking back at, on the day at Mount Sinai, he said, Moses said, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. So God surrounded Mount Sinai with terrifying black clouds as though a lightning strike had come out of that cloud at any moment. Psalm 18 is probably the strongest connection here. Psalm 18, 7 through 13. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. The dark rain clouds Of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. It's terrifying, but what's going on in Psalm 18? What is David talking about? Well, what happens is David is in trouble on a battlefield and cries out to God to deliver him. And then God does. He comes to rescue David in the midst of his trouble. Do you not see how that applies to the second coming? I believe the second coming is a rescue mission. I believe that the bridegroom is coming to rescue the bride because she's about to become exterminated by the Antichrist. And he is rage—he's filled with rage over it. Psalm 18 describes that. So you're like, would God do all that for one person, King David? Well, we know that God protected David in every battlefield he ever fought on. He never died in battle, and so God did deliver him and rescued him and crushed his enemies on earth. David himself is a symbol of Christ. But ultimately, I think this idea of God rending the heavens, coming with the clouds to rescue his people is consummated at the second coming. It's a rescue mission where the people of God are rescued from their enemies and from imminent death. Or again, Isaiah 30 and verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, with burning anger and dense clouds of smoke. His lips are full of wrath, and his tongue a consuming fire. So Jesus comes with the literal clouds, the physical clouds, but also metaphorically, he comes in the wrath of God. Next, the morning of the nations. It's not mentioned in Mark, but I want to bring it up. It's mentioned in Mark or Matthew, and it's also mentioned in Revelation one and Revelation 18. Matthew Twenty four thirty. at that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations of the earth will mourn. Think about that. They're all going to mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Or again, Revelation 1, 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, Amen. A mourning. Why? Why are the nations mourning? Well, it is the end of the world. And that throwaway statement was not the end of the world. No, that will be the end of the world. That's it. And all of the things that those unbelievers have been living for will instantly come to an end. And this is depicted with the fall of Babylon. In Revelation 18, nine through eleven, when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with Babylon and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe, great city, O Babylon, city of power. In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, because no one buys their cargoes anymore. So that the, the party's over. All the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life is done that day. It's over. It's judgment day for them, and so they will mourn. The righteous wrath of the Lord is being poured out on them for their sins, especially because they have not loved Christ or his people. As it says in 2 Thessalonians 2.10, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And so Revelation 18, 18 through 20 says, when they see the smoke, of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? And they will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe, O oh great city, where all who had ships of the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven, rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets, for God has judged her for the way she treated you. So that's the justice of God, but there is mourning and grieving. Let me just stop right now and say the best thing we can do is believe all of these things and the judgment day that follows and even more the hell that follows that and mourn and grieve now by faith. Grieve over sin now and flee to Christ. That's the best thing we can do is believe these things now when there's still time. At that point, the tears will mean nothing. Then there's the gathering of the elect. Look at verse 27. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. This is the I believe the primary reason other than the glory of God, the pl- primary reason for the second coming. He's come to gather his bride together, his people. The antichrist will be bearing down on them with great power, great hatred. He will be hunting them down to force them to blaspheme by receiving the mark of the beast. Jesus said, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. That's how bad it's going to be. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. Everyone has their limit. There's only so much temptation we can face. No matter how courageous, no matter how faith-filled, no matter how much we're willing to suffer and die as martyrs, there is a limit to what we can endure. Remember, as I talked about last week, the night that Jesus was arrested, he made them say twice who they were there to arrest so that he could say concerning the rest of his followers, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. And John said, Jesus said this so that it would be the saying he had stated would come true. Of all those you have given me, I've not lost one. There is a time to run away. But if that power, that antichrist power, is spreading over the earth with so much domination... And if those days had not been cut short or counted as in Daniel 12, he would say, when the Son of Man comes, will there be any believers left on earth? And so he intervenes. Furthermore, I think he just wants to be with us. I mean, ultimately, isn't that it? Isn't that the point of his death on the cross? He wants to spend eternity with us. He wants to feast with us in heaven. He wants to walk with us in the new heaven, new earth. He wants fellowship with us. He earnestly desires to be with us. Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that blow your mind? We're pathetic. And yet he loves us and wants to be with us. And guess what? We're not going to be pathetic in heaven. Praise God. We'll be really pretty amazing. We'll be glorified. But he still loves us. And he says in John 14, 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. Why? So that you also may be where I am. Or again, 1 Thessalonians four seventeen, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Ezekiel 37, 23. Have you heard this before? They will be my people and I will be their God. You know how many times it says that in Ezekiel and Jeremiah? The answer is seven. But that's how many times, again and again, they will be my people and I will be their God. He wants fellowship with us. Or again, it's cited in Revelation 21.3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he'll wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. He just wants to be with us. And this is, at this moment... The rapture, as I mentioned. He's going to send out his angels and they will gather his elect. All right. They're they're dispatched to collect us and bring us up to meet the Lord in the air. Let me read First Thessalonians 4, 16, 17 again. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up. That's rapture. That's what the word means in the Latin root, is to be captured up, caught up. I picture like a mother, cat, and a kitten being, you know, we're grabbed by the back of the neck, something like that. Because we can't fly. You do know that, right? We're not able to fly. Gravity works on us. So how are we going to meet the Lord in the air? Well, he's going to send out angels who can fly, and they will pick us up so that we can meet the Lord in the clouds. And you may say, well, why does he want to meet us in the clouds? I don't know, but he does. And so we're going to go out like a kind of a welcome committee and meet him in the clouds. This is the rapture. Verse 27, he will send his angels and they will gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. By the way, the elect by then will all have been converted. Evangelism and missions will be done by then. No unconverted elect. This is the the eternal separation at this moment of the elect and non-elect, as Matthew 24 says, 40 and 41. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill, one will be taken, and the other left. Yes, I believe in the left-behind thing. But the left-behind here is not pre-trib, seven-year, and all that. This is the separation at the second coming. And if you're left behind at that moment, you are non-elect, and the gospel era is over. So the sheep and the goats are separated. The wheat and the the weeds are separated. The good fish and bad fish are separated forever. And the non-elect will be stunned and seem like they have no idea what's happening. They will not understand this. Matthew 24, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. From the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, right up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. All right, so how can we apply this? How can we properly prepare for the second coming? Well, I've already said it, but first and foremost, trust in Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins while there's time. That day is the end of the faith era. It's the end of the gospel era. It's the end of the open door to Noah's ark era. God closed Noah's door with his own hand. God ended that. Everyone outside the ark perished. Now is the time to enter now is the time to believe. Now is the time to trust in Christ, to believe in Him for the forgiveness of your sins. So that's how it starts. And, and what does that look like? Paul spoke to the Thessalonian Christians in 1 Thessalonians 1 9 and 10. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath, right? So what does it mean? It's to turn to God away from idols. What are idols? It's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. It's all the things that lead us away from God. It's all the wickedness. We turn away from those things, away from sin to God through Christ. And we receive forgiveness for all of our sins. Jesus' blood shed for all of our idolatries. And you, you did that, the Thessalonians. You turned to God from idols and you waited to wait for a son from heaven. So prepare that way. Secondly, cry out in prayer I would say daily for the second coming of Christ. All right? It's already very famous. I cited it once, but you remember, it's the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What's next? May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the second coming. It's a crying out for the second coming. So pray that. Do it. Revelation twenty two twenty. 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. What was John's response? Amen, come, Lord Jesus. That's a prayer, right? Amen, come, Lord Jesus. Or again, Revelation 1, 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. John's answer. Even so, amen, let it be. I want that to happen. Or again, in 1 Corinthians 16.22, if you have um, New American Standard Translation, it reads like this. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Maranatha. Well, what is Maranatha? It's Aramaic for come, Lord. It's a prayer for the second coming. So Christians should cry out for Jesus to come. And this accords with our understanding of prayer. Not as, number one, giving God an idea he didn't have before. Or number two, persuading God to do something he didn't want to do until you persuaded him. That's not what prayer is. Then what is prayer? It's understanding from the word what God has said he's going to do but hasn't done yet and ask him to do it. Wouldn't you think the second coming fits that description? Has God revealed that he wants his son to come? Yes. Has it happened yet? No. Pray for it. Pray for it. Thirdly, look forward to the second coming and long for it. Your prayer for it will stimulate that, but you should long for the second coming. 2 Peter 3.12 says, look forward to the day of God. 2 Peter 3.13, in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven, new earth. And then verse 14, so then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to that, that's three consecutive verses, look forward to it, look forward to it, look forward to it. That means yearn for it, be hot for it. Say, I want this to happen. Fourth, be holy. Again, leaning on Second Peter 3. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? Answer, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. Second Peter three fourteen. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Now that day is coming, bringing about the destruction of the heavens by fire, And the elements will melt in the heat, but in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heavens and new earth called the home of righteousness. Only pure people will enter the new Jerusalem. Now, we know we can't purify ourselves by our our own efforts, but we know that it's justification, sanctification, and then glorification. That's that purification. And so John says very plainly in 1 John 3, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him, what? Purifies himself, just as he is pure. So the more you believe in the second coming, what Jesus is coming to do, the more zealous you should be to put evil and sin to death in your own life. Colossians 3, 5, and 6 Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. So when is that second coming? That's why he's coming back is to destroy those sins. Fifth, speed the second coming by evangelism and missions. Peter said, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Matthew 24, 14, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So we speed the day of God by evangelism and missions. Every unconverted elect person who then becomes converted and crosses over from death to life through faith in Jesus, we've gotten that much closer to the second coming of Christ. We are called on to preach the gospel to lost people. We're surrounded by people who, like in the days of Noah, they are not ready for the second coming. And we should care about that. Sixth serve the Lord's purposes in light of the second coming. Second Timothy 4, 1 and 2, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. We are each given a role to play. You all have a ministry, or should have, a spiritual gift ministry. Do it. 2 Timothy 4, in light of the second coming, in light of the fact that in view of his coming, you're going to give an account for your life and your ministry. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time we've had to walk through this deep, powerful, and significant topic. Father, I pray that you would press these truths home. Help us to live in light of them. Help us to be prepared. Help us to warn others who we know are not yet prepared. Oh, Lord, help us to be holy, to put sin to death. Help us to just saturate our minds in the truths of the Word so that we may live a life pleasing to God. In your name we pray, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification,